Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lipman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham. We do welcome you to this week's edition of the Lone Star Podcast. This is Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. I'm joined by my good friend, Rabbi Dove Lipman in the land of Israel. Shalom, Rabbi. How are you, my friend? Shalom, Pastor. Uh, doing okay. A little bit sad here uh, in Israel dealing with a vicious uh, terror attack this week and um, always uh, you know, sort of brings us down and we mourn and then we have to pick ourselves up and just keep going. We do want to get to our weekly Torah portion to study the Bible together in a few minutes, but let's do talk about a terrible incident that occurred on Tuesday night a few days ago and the death of a beautiful man, it seems, I don't know him, 35-year-old rabbi Razael Shevak was the, a father, a husband. He lived in Judea and Samaria, what the world likes to call the West Bank. And sadly, he was murdered by terrorists. And as we record this, they've not yet been identified. They've not yet been arrested. And of course, this is going to lead to a whole bunch of questions about is it safe to visit the land and all of that, which we can talk about in a few minutes. But let's take a time to mourn the loss of an innocent person and tell us a little bit of the event itself. What happened and how did this man lose his life? I'm happy you asked the question that way because sometimes people don't even realize uh, the way this works. Uh, first of all, actually, let me start out and say Israel's a safe place to live, safe place to be, God's land. We've had thousands and thousands of rockets uh, shot at us, and, and, and the, the, the casualties are, are minimal. Not that we minimize any loss of life or damage or, or, in, or injuries, but uh, crime rate here is nowhere compared to the way it is in most places in the United States. That's for sure, and it's a safe place to be. Uh, this uh, rabbi, Rabbi Raziel Shavach, was just driving home, just driving home in Samaria. He lives in a settlement there. These vicious Palestinian terrorists came with, with guns and uh, probably automatic weapons and, and shot his car up, up with these bullets, and he was uh, mortally wounded. And uh, like you said, uh, rabbi, father of six children, six young children who are now orphaned from their father, husband. He was a person who was a central figure in the neighborhood where he lived on a spiritual level, uh, taught the, you know, we're going to talk about the weekly portion soon. Every uh, Sabbath, he was the one who led the children and teaching them the weekly portion, got them excited about religion and about spirituality, and was very much a leader. And, and now he's gone, and, and we in Israel, we pause, we mourn uh, as one big family together. And at a certain point, we just pick ourselves up again and we keep going. The security forces will find the people who did it and they'll be brought to uh, justice. And uh, that's just the way it takes time. They ran into a Palestinian area. So it makes it a lot more complicated to find them. So we, we function on these three fronts. On the one hand, the mourning and the pain and, and being there together with the family. Number two, committing ourselves to picking ourselves up and, and continuing forward and even stronger 
and part three, carrying out justice to those who, who have done this. And this is something which Israel lives with. We've had it for decades. We've had it even before the state of Israel was founded with the Arabs here not accepting the Jewish state or the even plan to start a Jewish state. And we've had these terror attacks and they're, and they're horrible and they're painful. And, and we just keep going. And that's what, that's, and that's what we're going to do. And I hope that this, this story gets some coverage. You know, sometimes I, I wonder, you know, the people in the world and the media gets used to terror attacks uh, in Israel from time to time. And they don't always get the coverage that you get from terror attacks in Paris or in Madrid or in London or even in New York. And uh, we're all in this together in this fight against radical Islamic jihad. And that's exactly what it is over here. And uh, hopefully we'll all fight against it together as well. We believe in the value of every human life and we mourn the loss of an innocent man and his wife is left to be a widow. His children will not have a father now, and we ask the Lord to bless and comfort their family. And of course, Rabbi, I am at the same time inviting people to go to Israel with me. In April and November later this year, we'll be taking groups back to the land to see you and our other friends. And so people are automatically going to say, is it safe to go? And should tourists go there? And maybe we should all stay home. And yet, go ahead, if you will, and reassure folks that your family is going to move forward. You're personally going to go forward, but you're also going to welcome folks like us to come and visit you. And it is a safe place to visit, even when we recognize and mourn such tragedies like this. 100%. Uh, we not only welcome it, I would go a step further. When we have tragedies like this, when we have visitors who come, uh, those visitors don't realize how much that gives us strength. When Israelis see, especially our Christian friends from overseas, coming, identifying with us, seeing this as the Holy Land, reminding us of how special this land is, it gives us tremendous strength. And therefore, uh, I certainly look forward to seeing your groups. It gives me strength uh, and, and motivation to continue on every time we see them. It's safe. The areas that, that, that you'll take them on their tours and experience all the biblical sites are, are safe with God's help. Uh, everyone has uh, that, that protection. And we, we, here and there, we do have these episodes that we have to deal with. They can happen anywhere in the world, as we've been uh, shown all too clearly in the last number of years. And, uh, but just people who are choosing to come should realize how much that does for people of Israel. It's not just your trip where you get inspired and where you walk away changed and more spiritual, but it actually lifts us up as well. And I'm sure that, you know, Genesis 12, those who bless Israel are blessed. If people come here and provide us with that blessing, I have no doubt they walk away uh, with that blessing of God. The last part of this conversation is you and your wife and your children have to move forward. Your son serves in the Israeli military. We mourn, and yet we continue to move forward. That's exactly right. And um, on a certain level, I don't think the terrorists realize this, but these attacks actually fill us with even greater conviction to move forward, greater conviction to settle the land, greater conviction to entrench ourselves as a Jewish state in the Jewish homeland. And it does, I've heard stories of people who have moved to Israel from overseas to be here together with Israel, even when they suffer, or specifically when they suffer. So it strengthens us, strengthens us in, in attitude, in approach, in numbers, and brings us together 
uh, as a people. You know, Israel is a, a place just like any other land and democracy where you have polarization based on politics and ideology and even theology. But these kinds of moments bring us all together and, and we leave even stronger. So that, that actually relates a little bit to the Torah portion, which we haven't jumped to yet, but just hit me right now as I said it. In the portion, there's a section about the, we had last week, uh, as the, the, the Egyptians were persecuting the Jews, uh, they continued to uh, increase. We just get we just get even stronger. There's the uh, story of the frogs in this week's portion, where the uh, frogs, uh, according to our tradition, it started out as one frog, and the Egyptians started hitting it, and then it became ten frogs. They hit them more, became a hundred frogs, and so on and so forth. Uh, hitting us uh, doesn't help. You, you, you'll, you'll get it a hundredfold in terms of the justice, and will hundredfold in terms of the positive that we walk away with. So that's the way we deal with it, and uh, we certainly. Uh, move forward and do so with the sadness, with the mourning, but also always uh, with our eye to the future and the faith that God has only good things ahead for us. We will talk about the weekly Torah portion in just a moment, but I do ask our Christian and Jewish listeners to pray for the family of Rabbi Razel Shevak. He was tragically murdered this past week, and he leaves a wife and six children behind. And we ask the Lord to bless and comfort this family and these children who we believe the book of Psalms when it says that the Lord is the father to the fatherless. And so we ask that for this family as we move into this week's Torah portion. The rabbi and the pastor, we get together every week to talk about the weekly portion from the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses. And we began last week's Torah portion in a new Bible book, the book of Exodus. And we studied Exodus chapters 1 through 5 last week. This week's Torah portion is called Va'era, which means, and I appeared in Hebrew. And this study covers Exodus chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And our listeners who have studied their Bible will be familiar with the basics of the story that Moses, the man who was born as a Jew, was adopted by the princess, the daughter of the ruler of Egypt, then raised as the prince of Egypt. And then at the age of 40, as we studied last week, he saw the Egyptian guard mistreating the Hebrew slave and his anger and his, his temper took over. He murdered the Egyptian guard at the age of 40, and now he has a crisis of his identity and realizes he really is a Jew, and he must stand up against the Egyptian cruelty. Because of this crime, he is forced to flee. He becomes a fugitive from age 40 until age 80. And then at the age of 80, the Lord speaks to him at the burning bush scene that we discussed last week and said, I will send you back to the place where you grew up to lead your people out of slavery and out of bondage. And so when we pick up this week's portion in chapter 6, Moses has been sent to the ruler, the Pharaoh, to give a demand. Let the people of Israel go. And so, Rabbi, we want to get into the plagues, and there are ten of them, and seven of them are covered in this week's chapters, 6, 7, 8, and 9. But I want to ask you to kind of paint a picture for us. This gentleman, who was a prince within the palace... But he's been gone for 40 years, living in Midian as a shepherd, working for his father-in-law. He has been given this assignment to walk into power, to walk into royalty and make demands. And we know he was nervous. We know he was fearful. He says he's not an eloquent speaker. How do you think the Egyptians responded when this guy shows up and starts making demands? 
Well, there's two parts to that. It's a great, it's a great question because not only is it this, this person returning, it's a person who they were familiar with, as we've talked about, uh, from the palace who disappears for uh, essentially uh, 60-some-odd years. And I, I, th- their first reaction, without a doubt, is to mock uh, this person. And what God are you talking about? And who do you think you are coming and telling the Pharaoh of Egypt uh, what to do? And that's why God arms Moses with various signs to be able to prove the divine origin of the mission. But, but there's no doubt that you know, the redemption comes from the, the strangest places or, the, or the, the least expected places, and that's exactly what happens over here as well, because out of, out of anyone, no one would have expected Moses to come back in this position, this person who, as you mentioned, uh, had a, some kind of a speech issue and wasn't part of the fabric of Egypt or the people of Israel for all these decades, and here he comes and he's the Savior. So there's school there's mockery, and there's a lack of taking, taking him seriously. So as we begin to review this section of the Scripture, starting in Exodus chapter 6, we see the Lord calling Moses and giving him this assignment, and he reassures him. God says in Exodus 6, verse 2, I am the Lord. Verse 3, he said, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, or El Shaddai. And then we get to verse 6, and he begins a series where the Lord makes these promises, a series of phrases that in English, the Lord says, I will. He says in Exodus 6, verse 6, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you for my people. I will be your God. I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give to you for a possession. And he closes it by saying again, I am the Lord, that sacred and covenant name of God. So, Rabbi, tell us the significance of repetitive promises by the Lord. He doesn't just give Moses an assignment and says, you're on your own, good luck. He says, I will, I will, I will, over and over again. Yeah, God wants Moses uh, to know that uh, he's going to be with him, that it's not in his hands to make this happen, but he's just the messenger of God in doing so. This is a critical point, because Moses, we're taught later on in the Bible, is the most modest of all men. Anav Mikol Adam is the Hebrew terminology. We live in a world where leaders, sadly, become full of, of ego and sense of self, and believing that they're the ones who are really pulling the strings. And, and this is a reminder over and over again to Moses, who's going to be the ultimate redeemer and the ultimate teacher who brings us the, the Bible and, and the Torah at Sinai, uh, to remember he is just a human being. He is a vehicle that God is using, and he has risen to the occasion to be this leader, and he's accepted that role. But to always remember that it's not about Moses, it's about God. And, and you see how susceptible the people were to this problem. And well, I'm jumping now, but later on in Exodus, we're going to learn about the golden calf. And you see how quickly uh, they're able to, you know, they, they, saw, they saw Moses as a godlike figure, and Moses disappears, and they, 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 they end up uh, with idolatry and the golden calf. This is what God is trying to emphasize. I'm there with you. It's me. And, and for the people of Israel to know that it's not Moses, uh, Moses is just the messenger, but it's also the loving son of God as well. If Moses was just out there on his own, then it would be very difficult for him to do this. But the moment God reassures him 
over and over again that I'm with you, that gives Moses the ability to, to succeed. That recognition that God is with you in these efforts gives you the ability to succeed. And that's something which I know is a, is a value which, which both of our faiths share. We do believe that the Lord has given us an assignment and given us a mission, but also will never leave us or forsake us. He says, especially to Joshua, that famous verse in Joshua chapter 1, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Moses is rightfully humbled. He's rightfully nervous, I think, because he has an impossible mission given to him that is humanly undoable unless the Lord is with him unless the Lord provides the security and the protection and the favor. And his role is to go demand of the ruler of Egypt to ruin your economy. I want you to let all of your slaves go. All of those who work in your farms, all of those who work in your construction projects, let them all go, making your economy fall apart because my God says so. And the Pharaoh begins to say, who is this God and who do you think you are to try to tell me what to do? Rabbi, I'd like to discuss a specific phrase that you read a lot. And if you look at Exodus 7, verse 3, the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and I will bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So I want you to comment first on this phrase that Pharaoh hardened his heart, as we read in the earlier portions of Exodus. Now it says the Lord hardens his heart, and then we'll talk about the idea that Egypt will learn who the true God is. So there's a lot of uh, philosophical discussion in the Jewish texts about this issue of the hardening of the heart, because the obvious question which one has to ask is, did God take away uh, Pharaoh's ability to repent? We all believe in the value of repentance, and that no one uh, reaches the point where they can't repent. So, so how do we understand theologically and philosophically that God hardens his heart? And the truth is, the first hardening of the heart, where, where Pharaoh hardens his heart and Pharaoh makes a decision, he's not going to pay attention to this God or any of the signs that, that he brings. That's the first step to answering that question. We have two approaches. Uh, one is that abs- there is absolutely actually a point where a person can lose their right. You can be so bad and so vicious and reach a point that this is one opinion in our tradition that you actually do forsake your ability for, for God to help you and, and bring you out of, out of your mess. Uh, the other possibility is that God wants to provide him with choice and he has to make it even. If he would see all the miracles that God's about to do, Pharaoh doesn't even have any choice. It's just obvious to let the Jews go. So the hardening of the heart actually created a neutral zone for Pharaoh. He could then decide, does he want to let them go or not? But we definitely see an element here. Uh, in Hebrew, it's bederech sha'adamotso lelech The direction that you want to go in, that's the direction where things go. And when you decide that you're hardening your heart, and when you decide that you're not going to be inspired spiritually, you're not going to open up your heart to God, then that's what's going to happen. And you can't expect someone else to come in and pull you out if you don't take the steps uh, to do that on your own. And that's how how we approach uh, this issue. And I'm very curious to hear how the Christian faith would approach this kind of a question of God seemingly taking away the chance for repentance from Pharaoh. 
the Christian commentaries about Exodus indicate that when you read the scriptures very carefully, the times when it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, the first several references, he does it himself. And you indicated that. He chooses. He refuses. He hardens his heart. He becomes unyielding. He becomes refusing or stubborn. And all of these are instances where he is building the case that he will not ever truly repent. He will not ever truly surrender his heart to the one true God. And so when the Lord finally says, I will harden his heart, there is agreement in our traditions that this is the Lord saying, okay, you've made your decision. Now you will deal with the consequences of it. That the Lord's mercies are new every morning, that his faithfulness is great. But if you or I say no, 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 over and over and over again to the Lord's offer of mercy, then the Lord has shown grace and patience and forbearance. And at some point, the Lord is more than justified to say, okay, you've made your decision. You will live with that. And the result is I've turned my back on the offer of salvation. I've turned my back on the offer of forgiveness. And the Lord who is gracious and desires all men to be saved is justified when he says, I offered it to you and you refused it. And so the hardening of the heart starts with Pharaoh and becomes the Lord saying, I will fulfill your own wish. I will now do what you have asked to be done. And then the next phrase I do want you to comment on because I know it's important to your understanding and your teaching in Exodus 7 verse 5, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So not only are your people, the Jews, being revealed to show the power of God and the one true God, and we'll get into his power over false gods in a moment, but not just the Jews are being called, but the non-Jews are being called to recognize who the one true God is. And that is a, a, a very essential part of our ideology and, and, and theology, and that is it's not just about our people. You know, sometimes you might hear about a faith where it's just about them and, and not worrying about anyone else in the world, and that's very much not our belief at all. God here is trying to inspire the Egyptians. The words in Hebrew are v'yadu mitrayim ki Hashem, but the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord God. There's a goal for every single human being. Everyone is created in God's image, and the goal is that every single human being should know about God and should know about living spiritual lives, and it's a tremendous this tremendous lesson, because here we're talking about pagan Egypt, a pagan Egypt that was persecuting the people of Israel and the Jewish people, uh, killing their children, uh, this hard, backbreaking labor for, for hundreds of years, and we're still interested in making sure that every single person that's alive understands and recognizes God. And that's something which we all have to keep in mind. And actually, in Judaism, uh, we don't proselytize in terms of telling people to become Jewish, but we want everyone to be inspired uh, to live a life with God. And to, that's part of being a light unto the nations, is that we're supposed to be bringing that spirituality and bringing that message of a one God to the world. So we really learn that from the, those words that you just pointed to in chapter 7, verse 5, that the Egyptians should know. That's a goal of God, and we have to learn from that as well, to inspire all people to God and to a belief in one God and to living based on the values uh, of that one God. And this, for sure, I know, is something uh, that we share as we see uh, Christians trying to share their faith throughout the world. 
Well, of course, the Great Commission, as it's called, from Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. And the New Testament of our Bible is written in Greek, and it says ta ethne, and it's translated all nations. But of course, that can also be translated all ethnic groups. Go and make disciples ta ethne, all nations. Our desire is to explain who Jesus is, because he is our Savior, to all people of all backgrounds. And Rabbi, you know we have Jews and Gentiles who follow after Jesus within our church family. We have people of different nationalities, different racial groups, different generations and economic groups. And the beautiful mixture of what we call the body of Christ is exactly what you're saying. We all believe there is one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we believe that Jesus is that God. He is the Son of God. So making the relationship with the one true God open to all nations or all peoples or non-Jews, including Jews, that's what Christianity is about. That's what go and make disciples is about when Jesus talks about it, is don't separate. Don't be exclusive. Be inclusive. Call people to a relationship with the one true God. Now, here's where we get into some controversy. When we say we are not exclusive, what we're saying is we invite all people to meet the one true God. So we're not excluding any groups of people, but we are excluding other gods. So we are inclusive of people. We are exclusive of false gods. And this week's Torah portion speaks just to that because our listeners will, I'm sure, remember there were 10 plagues that God brought down upon the Egyptian people after Pharaoh's continued refusal to let the people go. And in this week's Torah portion, which is Exodus chapters 6 through 9, we cover seven of the ten plagues. The first plague, the Nile River turns to blood in chapter 7. Well, the Egyptians had a god called Hapi, who was the god of the Nile. And Isis, which is an interesting name, was the goddess of the Nile. So the Lord God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, shows his power over that false god. The Egyptians had a goddess called Hecate, which was a woman with a head of a frog. Well, the second plague in chapter 8 of Exodus was frogs. Then there's another god called the god Set, which was the god of the desert. Well, the gnats overcome the desert. Plague number 3 in chapter 8. Plague number 4 in chapter 8 is flies. Well, the flies are so thick and so big of a swarm, they block out the god of the sun, For the Egyptians, they block out the sun. His name is Re, R-E. The fifth plague from chapter 9, the death of livestock. Well, the Egyptians had a goddess, Hathor, with a god, a male, Apis, and this was the bull and the cow. Well, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shows his authority over the livestock gods. And then we have two more in this passage, 6 and 7. The sixth plague, also in Exodus chapter 9, is the plague of boils. Well, they had a god called Sekhmet, which was the goddess over diseases, and another god called Sunu, which is the pestilence god. And the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob shows his authority over these false gods. And the last one in this week's portion in chapter 9, the hail comes down and destroys the crops. Well, the Egyptians had a goddess named Nut, N-U-T, which was the sky goddess. 
and Set, the god of storms, and Osiris, the god of the crops. So I think it is a very important revelation that these were not random judgments. This was not God just making something up as he went along. He was very intentional in showing himself as the one true God to both the Jews and the Egyptians. And when we talk next week about the last three plagues, this will be evident as well. And so, Rabbi, I want you to respond to this chart of how the one true God shows his preeminence, his sovereignty over the false gods and goddesses of the Egyptians. Well, first and foremost, I have to say, I have learned something so new tonight in this discussion. Really, something, whew, you know, you, you learn many, many years and different, different commentaries, and the one that you just laid out is so fantastic. The whole concept of the Ten Plagues being used to establish God as the God over, as the one God, as opposed to the, the, the pagan beliefs of Egypt as one that's very close to the Jewish faith. But hearing it laid out that way in terms of how each one chipped away at a different specific Egyptian God, uh, that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, we often talked about the plagues show God's mastery over the, over the sky and God's mastery over the lie live beings and God's mastery over the earth, but the way you just uh, went through each one is absolutely fantastic and something uh, we certainly we certainly share. And I think what's, what's beautiful is, even if we have uh, different beliefs in terms of some of the manifestations and things that have taken place throughout history, the notion that we're in this to bring the world the message of one God versus the pagan belief, that's what really brings us together, and, and, that's, and that's the message which we can bring to change worlds, and we have. Uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic has changed worlds uh, on this front and, 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 and is transforming a world away from uh, pagan beliefs towards monotheism, and, and here we see the first real step of God asserting himself uh, to do that. So I have to uh, make sure that I write down every step of the way that you mentioned so that I can give that over to my family and to other people uh, that live around me. And the last verse I'd like us to ponder comes from Exodus chapter 9, verse 1, and it's repeated several other times. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. Not let my people go so they can be lazy, not let the people go so they can be pagan, not let the people go so that they could be idolatrous. Let my people go that they may serve me. I believe this is a calling to have a growing relationship with the Lord. As a Christian, we use the term discipleship, grow to become a better student, a better follower of Jesus, that they may serve me. Our calling is not to just know who God is, but to serve him. I'd like you to react to that phrase. So we actually have a lot about that in our tradition. Uh, we're called Ovde Hashem, those who serve the Lord. Uh, Moses is called Moshe Avdi, Moses my servant, when God talks to Joshua after Moses passes away. We were taken out of slavery for freedom. But what is freedom? Freedom does not mean you're unleashed to do whatever you want to do. Freedom means you're unleashed to pursue what you're supposed to do and uh, live a disciplined life at free to accomplish what you're here for. And that's exactly, we were taken out of slavery to become slaves to God, slaves from Pharaoh in Egypt, redeemed from that, 
Now we can be slaves to God, but not slaves in a, in a negative, with a negative connotation, but free to be able to be who we're supposed to be on a spiritual level and reach the greatest heights with a connection to God. So this is something which we very, very much uh, identify with, and that's what's established, like you said, Pastor, in, the, in this verse. We're taken out not for freedom in the way the world often refers to freedom, which is I can do whatever I want, but I can do what I'm really supposed to do. And that's a critical critical message uh, that we have. And uh, there's also the element of gratitude in terms of God took us out. Now I can express that gratitude by doing what he's called upon us to do. So Rabbi, give us uh, your final thoughts today. We started with a very sad story of a man tragically losing his life. And we end with the Torah portion where God shows that he is the one true God and he calls us to know him. Jew or Gentile calls us to know him. So wrap it up for us today. You know, the story of the people of Israel being in this place of complete and total desperation. They're on the verge of annihilation. There's no hope. There's no uh, light at the end of the tunnel. They're stuck in Egypt, in pagan Egypt, with, with nothing to look forward to. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this salvation comes through, as you mentioned before, the almost unexpected source, and Moses comes in, and out of nowhere, we can have this uh, salvation from a God who has complete mastery over the world. And that's the way we view it here as well. Yes, right now, we might be experiencing moments of difficulties and tragedies, and uh, it's very difficult sometimes uh, to be able to see where this is all heading, but then we just open the Bible, and we'll sit in synagogue this Sabbath, and we'll read about it, and we'll be reminded of the fact that just like our forefathers, our ancestors in Egypt, were able to, out of nowhere, experience this salvation and redemption through God, we know that that's the way uh, our story will continue and end, ultimately, uh, here in the land of Israel. The fact that we're blessed to even be here is such a huge step along the way towards final and ultimate redemption. So we know from these stories uh, that it's going to come. We need to be uh, adherent to our faith, serving God and, and worshiping uh, as best as we can, each person in, their, in, in the way, best way that they can. But we know ultimately that that salvation, which God brought the people of Israel back then, happens for us uh, as well. And therefore, we, we, you know, we, we can't wait to get to synagogue uh, this Sabbath and, and read it and talk about it and be inspired by it. We do pray for the family of Rabbi Razel Shavak, who lost his life this week. And we say thank you to the Lord for giving us the chance to study his word together, for giving us the beautiful technology that we have in this century, that a pastor in Texas and a rabbi in Israel can talk on the phone and that people around the world can listen and study the truth of the scripture. And let's leave with that phrase that they may know that I am the Lord. That is our prayer for our Jewish friends and our Christian friends that they would know the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. My friend, Rabbi Dov Lippmann, Shabbat Shalom. Blessings to you and your family. Thank you. Blessings to you and to all of our listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dov Lippmann and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to himself this week.